When I talked to Diana shortly before she died, she still got nervous going out and meeting people if there'd been something unkind written about her in the newspapers that day, because I'd written something about her and uh, she didn't like it, so get Ingrid round here. We need a girly chat. I think having the capacity to play the long game and to take a step back, and I think that's actually one of the things that Kate has in spades. I think the ability to create distance from things that happen and to take that long-term view. Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of a Right Roll podcast with me, Andrea. And me, Emmy. In this week's episode, we're looking at becoming part of the royal family. Are you going to give us some tips? Oh, I wish. <laughs> we're looking at the life-changing unions of those who have been married into one of the most famous institutions on the planet. In this episode, we'll be speaking to biographer Ingrid Seward, who is the editor-in-chief of Majesty magazine and one of the most prominent and respected writers on the British royal family, with more than a dozen books on the subject to her credit. We also speak with royal journalist and author Victoria Murphy, who has been reporting on the royal family for over a decade. But first, we're joined by our very own sister from another mister... Emily Nash. <laughs> oh my word. Welcome. <laughs> Thanks for having me back. They're getting out of hand Always. Now. It's good fun. It's all good fun. <laughs> but before we get into things with Emily, shall we hear a word from our sponsor? We shall indeed. As you know, here at Hello, we love all things royal. And our sponsor today has as much love and dedication to the royals as we do. Offering a wide variety of fascinating, high quality documentaries and analysis, True Royalty TV is an on-demand service that allows you to watch hundreds of regally themed titles about royalty through the ages and around the world. I think we can agree that marrying into the royal family is life-changing, and True Royalty TV houses many interesting videos about how some of our favourite royals have navigated their newfound positions. They also investigate how current royals are bringing up the next generation, in titles such as Will and Kate, Raising a Royal Family. Luckily for our right royal listeners, True Royalty TV are offering a very special offer of a three-month subscription only for the price of one. Ka-ching! To receive this amazing deal, all you need to do is visit trueroyalty.tv forward slash hello to sign up today. Thank you so much to True Royalty TV for sponsoring this episode. The platform is available in all major app stores and streaming platforms. Now Back to the show. Now, give us like a crash course of how to become a member. Are you taking the- notes? Yes. Yeah, we're what both do we have married to do? women, but how do we marry into the royal family also? Thank you. I think you might have missed your chance. Uh, no, but- no, no. Divorce. Mm, okay. Divorce, but had to Not very on brand. Not Divorce, very on brand. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... It's a huge ask for anyone. We've talked about royal romance. We talked about the lovely, fluffy fairy tale stuff. But I think it's time now to talk about the realities of what you're getting yourself into. The work. If you sign up to become a member of the royal family, personally, I, I don't think anyone would have me for starters, but I can't begin to imagine how much it would change your life. Now, it's all not as good as it seems. There's a lot of hard work behind the scenes. Is it true that they have to know how to take tea? Do they have to know a lot about protocol, security, you know, what to do if they get kidnapped? I can't believe you started that with, do they have to learn how to take tea is the hardest thing they have to do well, and then followed it up well, with what they well, do if they get actually, kidnapped. what about all the forks and all the, you know, the cutlery at state banquets? I think some people find that the most scary bit. It's a bit of a challenge, isn't it? it? Is. Well, there's like a... three cups of, like six different glasses. Okay, so from learning cutlery <laughs> to having self-defence classes, what are some of the scariest things <laughs> that people yeah. have to know by going into the royal family? Well, I think first and 
foremost, you have to know the level of scrutiny you are going to face as a member of the royal family. So you may be marrying in for love, but you are signing up to a whole new way of life. And this involves being under a huge amount of pressure to look good, to look the part, to smile, to say the right things, to not slip up, to not mess up. That's a lot for someone to take on. And I think it probably takes a really special kind of character to be willing to do that. Well, especially because they have to keep tabs of like all the stories, right? All the newspapers every day. And they are front page of most of these newspapers. Even though you want to avoid it, you kind of have to read what's going on. Well, you do and you don't. And I think that most of the royal family, my understanding is, don't pay too much attention to the press. I think they're in lies uh, a path to madness but they obviously have teams that do that for them they have lots of people who do monitor the media and we know that people like William and Harry do take a keen interest the king on the other hand is shown articles that he might find interesting by members of his staff the queen however I think does pay close attention to news coverage and is very much across what's being said so they all take slightly different approaches to things but finding yourself suddenly on those front pages and in those headlines must be quite daunting, especially for someone who's come from a relatively normal background. And look, I'd love to think that there's a team of people behind the scenes supporting you through that. My understanding is that there are lots of people within the institution who can give you guidance and offer advice. And in fact, they have people paid to be private secretaries who do guide them through matters of diplomacy, teaching them about the organisations they're going to be visiting or engaging with. But a huge amount comes down to the person themselves. And I mean, to use Kate as an example, I think she's conducted herself incredibly well over the years. And maybe that's really a measure of how strong she is as a character and how secure she is in both in herself, but also in her relationship. Does she have days where she just wants to stay in bed? Maybe she does, but it's never once shown. Now we know, well, I think we could all agree who struggled the most when becoming a member of the royal family. And I'm thinking Princess Diana because she was so young. Well, yes, I think that's a really fair point. She was very, very young. But then again, her family knew the royal family well. They had long-standing connections. One of her sisters dated then Prince Charles. That's true. It was not an entirely new world for her. You know, her family owned a stately home. They weren't... Okay, maybe I got it wrong. Well, there are different (laughs) ways Who were you thinking? I thought, well, I was actually thinking Kate. Oh, wow. We have different... Interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. And I wonder what our listeners are also not, thinking. Not, Megan's spoken very openly about how hard she found yeah. it. But I was thinking from the outside, the transition from Kate, whose family are very respectable, middle-class, hard-working people, but very much not in the public eye and had lived a private life up until that point. I think Megan is a slightly different case because she had had the profile. She was more adept at interviews, at media appearances and things like that. That's not to say for a second that these things are comparable because they're not. Mm. But I think personality-wise, I think Kate's quite a shy person. I think she is not someone who naturally pushes herself forward. And I think she's really had to work at things like the public speaking 
to feel comfortable in her own skin and in the position she's in. Whereas, as we saw from Meghan, you know, when she first appeared with Harry in their engagement interview, she was absolutely magical on TV. You know, she really was polished. She was able to express herself very clearly. And I think, admittedly, she then later did not have such a great experience. But it's interesting to see how people adapt depending on their personalities. Who do you think has just had not an easy ride, but it's been like a natural journey out of all the women and men who've joined the royal family? I think the men have probably had the easiest ride, given that most of them have married into the family, but they're not working working members of the royal family. Actually, an interesting one is um, Vice Admiral Sir Tim Lawrence, Princess Anne's husband, who actually works very hard and is carrying out engagements, taking part in all sorts of things, but doesn't get a huge amount of attention, but appears to be just a fantastic partner to her. Yes. They're both incredibly hardworking, and that seems to work for them. But inevitably, and maybe this is a reflection on the way our media operates, on the way we all operate, there has been more attention on the women. It's the glamour, it's the personalities, and the love story. You know, it comes straight from a fairy tale of a, an ordinary girl, chosen, if you like, by Prince Charming. And so there's an element of romance that comes with that, and I think that fascinates people. How would you describe Sophie's journey? Because, I mean, I was kind of young when she married, but I feel like... from you saying I'm old. No, no, <laughs> but sh- you're very good at history. So oh, you're very good. I just feel like since I've known her... She was kind of like the now late queen's best friend, adopted daughter. She was always... I don't remember any drama. There might have been some. There I don't was. know. There, oh, there was, was drama. Sophie did not have an easy start of it either. Mm. And I think it's easy to forget, actually. And again, it's a sad indictment of the way that perhaps society views women and has historically portrayed women, covered women in the media, that they have had a level of scrutiny that isn't perhaps always afforded to men. And Sophie did have a tough time of it. She was caught up in a newspaper sting and she had a lot of criticism over Aww. that. And I think with hindsight, and we've all learned that what went on was extremely unfair to her. And I think she's managed to move on really, really well. Both she and Edward had to give up their careers as they knew them and then become full-time working royals because they were in that sort of in-and-out situation which Harry and Meghan later hoped to make work for them. And and really it didn't work because you couldn't run a business and not deliberately but nevertheless attract attention because of your royal connections and carry out the royal duties at the same time. So they had to make that choice. I like to think that things have changed a lot. Certainly at Hello, we don't go in for the sort of pitting women against each other. But there certainly has been a lot of that over the years. And huge criticism of royal women for what they're wearing, for what they're doing. Years ago, the people or the women and men that were joining the royal family had to follow certain rules when they could appear at certain places. So, for example, when they could join the family in Balmoral for Christmas. And that kind of like, through the years, has kind of relaxed a bit and I can imagine if I was in Kate's shoes or Sophie's shoes it would feel quite unfair that you know Kate dated William for so many years before she could really do anything and then we have someone like Meghan or Princess Beatrice's husband or even I think 
possibly even Jack Brooksbank, have had quite of an easy entrance, if that's fair to say. I mean, it's no ring, no bring. It's not, it's not, it's not anyone's fault that Will waited that long to prove no, that what no, to your husband. Uh, yeah, no, that's why he did it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I absolutely agree with you that there was a softening. But you have to only look back a few generations to see that Princess Margaret wasn't allowed to marry her, oh, a, a divorcee. The late Queen, of course, was a pragmatist. She realised at the point that three of her own children went through divorces that things had to change and they had to relax the rules. And I think there's been a gradual evolution just as there has been in wider society. We've talked about this before, haven't we, about how Elizabeth, the late queen, would have tried to have stick to the same rules as her father, who in turn, his father, and in turn, Victoria. So therefore, you know, we're operating on these royal rules that have been there since the 1800s, which is just mad, actually. So do you think it's definitely a positive thing that as we're getting more into modern times, they are changing. Yeah, absolutely. They have to stay relevant and they have to be able to connect with people. And one thing I think that we've all seen about the now king, Charles, is just how tactile he is, for example, in a way that his mother wasn't. And that doesn't mean that anyone loves her any less. But he has a different way of doing things. Mm. And we see that particularly with the younger rules all the time. And I find it interesting because people always say, oh, you know, the boys are just like Diana. Yes, they are. But they're also like their father. You know, he's got the sense of humour, he's got the charm, and he is a tactile, affectionate person, which is perhaps something that we're seeing a bit more that we didn't see while the late Queen was still alive. So I like where this conversation is going because I am getting the feeling that the royals are getting more relaxed as time goes by, which means, Emmy, you and I still have a chance. Well, that's, uh, yeah... (laughs) I, I won't With tell who? my husband. No you don't tell yours. Uh, no, no, I'm only joking because actually I don't think I could follow any rules. I'm so bad at following rules and then learning at this stage of my life. I think you also, just going back to what we were saying about Kate and Meghan as well, again, it comes down to the, the difference in age as well. Kate sort of has almost grown up yes. with William. So she did have a really, really long apprenticeship, if you like, as a royal bride. She got to know the system very, very well. You know, they had all the mutual friends and things. And you have to remember, Meghan had her own successful career and was coming into this later in life when mm. she had her own her own thing going on. And that would probably make it a lot harder to adjust to a completely new way of doing things. And let's not forget as well the culture clash, if you like, the difference in a a very ancient British institution for someone who's come from Hollywood and LA where everything's happening fast. You can see how that became really challenging for her. Absolutely. I mean, Kate, she's probably been now more royal in her lifetime than non-royal, right? That's a very good shout, actually. But also she might be remembering her non-royal life a lot now that she has kids because when you have children all you think about is back to your childhood and what you used to do and what you like to do and all these core memories that are so different from Williams so I bet that actually she's looking back at that time more than ever. I think you're right and I think what William and Kate have done so well and continue to do is really have this focus on normality for Mm. their kids you know yes one of them is going to be the future king of England. I feel very much like they don't want him to feel like things are set in stone and they want the kids to have opportunities and experiences that perhaps William didn't have as a kid. I think 
you know, look at those pictures of him taking George to Aston Villa match. Yeah. And they look like any other dad and son. Yeah. And that's just really lovely to Except see. Except they're wearing suits. They're wearing suits. They're not just like any other dad and son. They're sitting in the main box. But you know yes, what I'm saying. Yes, totally. It's interesting though, isn't it? Because looking at how old Charles was when he became king, George is going to have his whole life, probably, touch wood, before... He becomes king, so he very much should be brought up that way because, you know, he might be a pensioner (laughs) by the time that kicks in. (laughs) Exactly. And I think it's important that they go out and do normal things. So just as much as we're talking about these women marrying into the royal family, having to adapt to royal life, I think it's also interesting to see members of the royal family who are born into it trying to expand their own experiences beyond palace walls. And so the fact that William's gone out and worked for the air ambulance and for search and rescue will really stand him in good stead as a future king. He's going to be able to connect with people. He's able to empathise with people. And he's really able to understand what it is to have a proper job. And that, I think, is crucial in this day and age. Now, we have so many more burning questions, but we're going to give you a break. Thank you. And we're going to be joined now by biographer and editor-in-chief of Majesty magazine, Ingrid Seward. So let's welcome her. Welcome to the podcast, Ingrid. Today we're talking about the triumphs and pitfalls of becoming a member of the royal family. And you are someone who has been at the forefront of royal reporting throughout the years in which Lady Diana Spencer, Sarah Ferguson, Sophie Rhys-Jones and Camilla Parker-Bowles joined the firm, not to mention a certain Kate Middleton and Meghan Markle. Just how hard is it for an outsider to come into this institution? I think it is incredibly hard because it's a world that we don't know. I mean, we think we know it, and I think I know it because I've been doing this for so long, but we don't really know what it's like. And I think the person that gave the best description ever was Fergie. And she's got a wonderful description, which she told me, and I think it's in her book as well, of going to Sandringham and walking into the salon, they call it. And she didn't know who anyone was, but she sort of half knew who they were. And she didn't know what their titles were, and she didn't know what she was meant to do. So she just curtsied to everyone. Oh, my God. (laughs) Even the dogs, she said. (laughs) And then, you know, typical Fergie. She said, then I tripped over a corgi. and But I think I can imagine that that happened to her. And she used to talk to me about how very difficult it was. And she actually, we were having lunch and it was in one of her rented homes she had after she split up from Andrew and she was saying I really don't think I want my children in this world and they've got two sets of manners they've got an ordinary set of manners and they've got manners when they're with their grandmother you know with the late queen and she just said that basically you have to fight your own corner and you really are on your own you're not helped that much. Wow and that was back then and that was back then. And that what's interesting about that is that she didn't come from nothing. You know, she was from the landed gentry. She had a nice upbringing. I think her father would love you to say that. Well, <laughs> he was Prince Charles's polo manager and they had a beautiful farm, but they weren't rich. OK, OK, so that's a better let's say landed. understanding. <laughs> landed. landed. But, but she moved in the right circles, shall very, we say. Very well connected, yes. Yeah, so you'd imagine for someone like her and also... Princess Diana, who was from the aristocracy, that they might have felt more confident in this environment. But is it really at such a different level? 
Well, also, I think Diana told me when I read this, I can't remember, about her father told her. He said, you have to remember that they're very different from us. And he was an equerry. This is Lord Spencer. He was an equerry to the Queen when she was Princess Elizabeth and then when she became Queen. And also, he was an equerry to her father, King George VI. So you'd think he would have known. And they lived at Park House on the Sandringham Estate. So they were always there. And Diana used to go to parties at the big house. But she was still aware that it was different. And I don't think her father really explained to her what it was like because I actually don't think he knew what it was like to be on the inside. You mentioned Sarah Ferguson saying that about her children, but she's clearly done an amazing job because I feel, you know, Princess Beatrice and Eugenie, they're great when we see them. They're just incredible women. They're so respectful. And they've always said how much they love their late grandmother just very down to earth as very well. Very down to we, earth. We've yeah. heard that. I think Sarah times. Ferguson has done a great job with those girls. I think Fergie's done a brilliant job with it because they're so charming. Mm. Yeah. But then so is Fergie. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. Well, and I've I, met her before. I can yeah. say that she is utterly charming. She's mm. utterly charming. She remembers your name. Yes. She's just very like her mum. Mm. I mean, a long time ago when I just had my daughter and I was in a hospital for some, oh, I was writing Fergie's book. That's right. Susie Barantes, mm-hmm. who was Fergie's mum, came to see me in hospital. Oh, how lovely. Which was an amazing thing to do. And she told me that she has this incredible memory for names, faces and telephone numbers. Wow. All of which I'm terrible at. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, I think we've all met the Duchess yes, of York and she's have. really such a good people person. She remembers every single member of any team on a photo shoot and she writes to say thank you. She's, you know, impeccably well-mannered. So it's kind of hard to imagine that even someone with that background and that upbringing would find it so, so challenging. I think she said also that the challenging thing for her in particular was that her husband, the Duke of York, was in the Navy and very shortly after their marriage, I think they were in married quarters for a bit, but then he went to sea with his ship, and she was left alone at Buckingham Palace. Well, she thought she'd sort of got into a party box, and it was champagne all the way and all your friends there. And so then she started to get a bit of a reputation, and people weren't so happy. I mean, amongst, not with the Queen or anything, but with the sort of palace staff. Mm -hmm. I mean, who all really liked her. And then she started to become a bit unreliable. She was always late for appointments, and it sort of disintegrated a little bit then because... I think she just said, but I'm on my own. There's no one telling me what to do or even helping me. Now, out of Sarah and Diana, who had it easiest? Very difficult, that one. I think they both had a very difficult time. Diana thought she knew what it was going to be like. Fergie knew she didn't know what it was (laughs) going to be like. So I think perhaps, in a way, Diana had a more difficult time because, A, she was so much younger. She was only 19 Mm. So young. So young. And she was a very young 19. And she expected something completely different. She was expecting the sort of fairy tale. Oh, totally. You know, Prince Charles was going to appear and they were going to be sitting there holding hands forever and ever. And as soon as she became engaged, or just it was actually before her engagement, she was put into the old nursery quarters at Buckingham Palace as her quarters and sort of left there. And a great friend of mine was her footman, lovely, lovely guy called Mark Simpson. And he was assigned, because he was young, to help look after Dana. And they used to sit gossiping all day. But he said that she was too scared to even invite her friends there. 
And the person she relied on in those days was her mum. And they used to go shopping because she needed a wardrobe. The other thing is you don't have the clothes mm. to change five times a day. Where do you start with that? Oh my God. I mean, well, I think when Camilla first sort of appeared, if you like, reappeared, perhaps mm. we should say, she had a whole lot of ball gowns with all lots of fluffy bits on them mm-hmm. and with a girlfriend they cut all the fluffy bits off and sort of made all these taffeta ball gowns look more sedate because you don't a you don't have the money and b you don't know what to get and c no one would normally need that many clothes and and d your husband's really into sustainability yeah i mean all of these things are fascinating aren't they the etiquette the outfits Getting to appointments on time, that's a bit I would struggle with, for sure. And the, also the in-jokes. That's another thing I think that Lord Spencer told Diana. They've got a lot of in-jokes that you won't understand. You could just laugh and then, like, <laughs> did you get it? And you're like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing is, of course, that which seems to have gone right through the generations, is they never say thank you, you've done well. Oh. Which is, Fergie found that, Diana found that. Sophie probably did, but would never complain. And ditto of Kate, but Meghan complained about that. And so it's happened to them all. It's just sort of accepted that that's what you do. It does sound like history's repeated itself with Meghan, doesn't it? You know, just hearing Fergie's discussion of what it was like when she first entered the royal family. It's basically, it could be Meghan that we're talking about here. A lot of other challenges as well for Meghan, given the way life has changed, society's changed. There was the racism element, the social media element, which wasn't Social media that's really, really, really difficult. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, imagine you can't even sort of... Do that to your nose because they'll think you're dying of fever or something. Mm, mm. I think the social media has made it absolute nightmare. Well, yeah. yeah, closing a car door herself was a scandal on social media. Wasn't yeah. Cressida, Cressida Bonas, who mm. went out with Prince Harry, yes. she found really difficult. Well, she'd be walking down the street and she was being, people were sort of filming her on their phones oh, all the time. I know. That's horrendous. I and then she could hear what they were saying and they were sort of saying, look at her. She hasn't brushed her hair. And she hasn't even done the laces on her trainers up. So there's this barrage of criticism. People aren't meaning to be unkind, but it's just that they're saying, you know, because it's quite exciting seeing somebody that you you know there's a human being there. (laughs) Well, I think on social media, people do want to be unkind. I think some people are hiding behind their computers and keyboards. Which is very much the case with Megan, I think. Yes. She's suffered a lot from that. Kate, I'm sure, probably has suffered too, but again, I don't think she'd ever say anything. No. I just want to go back to Fergie because... And it was said of Meghan when she appeared on the scene, you know, everyone called her a real breath of fresh air. What was it about her that people loved? I remember writing, she was a breath of fresh air rushing down the dusty corridors of time (laughs) (laughs) of Buckingham Palace. I mean, very purple prose. You wouldn't write like that now. But I do remember writing that. And I think it was because she was so exuberant Mm -hmm. and happy. And then she went over the top with all her clothes and the ribbons and the earrings and the this and the that. But she was just so happy and she waved to everyone. And there was a lot of interaction where we'd not really seen that before with a member of the royal family. Remember, she was pre-Sophie, so after Diana, she was the next one. And we hadn't seen that kind of interaction. I'm fascinated by what you just said about Cresta as well, because we're talking in another episode about royal romance. But it's not the romance sometimes that goes wrong as much as the prospect of coming into this institution and living that life in the fishbowl. And we saw with for poor Prince Harry, Chelsea Davy. 
and Cresta both walk away from it. And what sort of character traits do you think it takes for someone to sign up? Cresta and I did talk about it very briefly because I know her mum. I think she just said, you know, it's just really a very difficult place to be. And I think perhaps you need to be rather dull and probably be a very self-contained sort of person. Mm. Fergie, of course, was exactly the opposite. She wanted to be out there. I mean, the only one, of course, when I don't want to bang on about this, is Kate has the only one that really seems to have got it absolutely right. Mm. But then she did have quite a lot of experience first. Yeah, she, she had was, a very She went out with William preparation. for well, nearly yeah. nine years, didn't she? Mm. So she knew quite a lot yeah. about it. And she seems to be able to keep her innermost feelings to herself and yet be absolutely wonderful with everybody else. I don't know how she does it. Yeah. I think she must get very tired at the end of the day. Probably William played a very important part, surely, like he... In helping to prepare yeah. her. And he's very protective of her He was probably well. very honest about it and be like, you know, this is what it is and this is what will have to do because he knows he is the heir to the throne. I think there's something to be said as well about the hierarchy, isn't there? Because you have her going into that marriage knowing that she will one day be queen. It's a bit different for someone like Fergie because I guess the pressure's off to an extent. There wasn't the need to sort of always be playing the very long game in terms of her role. So perhaps that's one of the differences as well. Don't you think maybe the secret is to have a mother like Carol Middleton? She's just... Yeah. Um, but I always used to she think... She got it the, all right. The queen, when the Queen said her prayers at night, she must say, oh, thank you. Thank you, Carol Middleton. <laughs> bringing up your daughter so beautifully. Because, it, I mean, there's nothing she can't do. I know. Yeah. It sort of doesn't seem fair, though, in a way, does it? That The way to get into the royal family and be really accepted is just to be very, very quiet and not respond to any criticism and just wait until you're sort of... Until your time comes. Well, yeah, well received by the media. And like, but, you know, but it's maybe like, it's like every person that's tried to fight back against that and have a voice has just been... Yeah. Kind of torn to shreds. In the old yeah. days, it's always been that way. Yeah. And the fiery brides are the ones that haven't worked. Or they've been super intelligent and taken over. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I do think, you know, and we can only surmise this, but actually I personally think that Kate is remarkably strong. Yeah. And she obviously loves William. She loves her family and she will make it work for her and how she deals with it is, well, I'm is sure to, she is has to a have therapist, a very tight, <laughs> close circle of friends and just rises above it, I guess. But not everyone can do I mean, that. You yeah, see a true. lot of her, don't you? Because yes. you're out and about with her yeah. much more than I ever would. Yeah, yeah. I mean, do you get a vibe when you're on royal events? I feel like she is absolutely superb in public and able to maybe like the late Queen compartmentalise things if something is bothering her. Some of us, uh, mentioning myself here, are not so good at hiding our emotions. Mm. And I'm not saying she's necessarily hiding anything, but she's able to fully focus on what she's doing in that moment. And I think that's incredibly helpful. I mean, we've seen her out and about after certain books have been published or certain news, you know, have been revealed and her face is the same as any other day. She's quite shy, isn't she, Kate? Sort she of is. naturally. And yeah. it's like, maybe that's definitely an element. I think she's in it for the family mm. and, and because she genuinely loves William and yeah. she's taking this on. But it's interesting as well that there's a generational shift now. Now we've got the king on the throne. Maybe things are going to become more relaxed. Maybe moving on, things but, will change. Well, the thing is the interest. It's the interest. It's such a huge interest globally now. 
I mean, started with, I suppose it didn't really start with, but let's say you've got the crown, mm. which has brought in all kinds of people that didn't even know the royal family existed, that are now interested. So it's the interest is huge when you think of the royal books, the royal publications, the podcasts. It's huge. Mm. And it really wasn't. When I first started doing royal tours, there were about five of us. Mm, right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, okay, well, it was great fun. Oh, it was great fun. <laughs> yeah. But another thing I must tell you is because when I talked to Diana shortly before she died, she did tell me that she still got nervous going out and meeting people if there'd been something unkind written about her in the newspapers that day. Now, this is obviously something that's passed on to Harry. Because Diana used to read all the time everything that was written about her, which is how I came to be chatting to her, because I'd written something about her mm-hmm. in the Daily Mail. And uh, she didn't like it, so she sort of got her secretary to call me and said, get Ingrid round here. We need a girly chat, she said. Oh. Oh. That's one way of dealing yeah, with one things. One way of dealing with things, isn't it? Yeah. She used to do that. To, um, I'd have been writing unkind... all things every week. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, That's... we don't write unkind things, Andrea. What if you get invited round for tea? It wasn't, it wasn't <laughs> unkind. I just said that men were going into Kensington Palace under a blanket of a car. And that was because she wanted to keep the Hasnet Khan romance secret. And mm-hmm. she, I had no idea. But she thought I knew. Oh. Were you terrified, Ingrid, for that tea? Or uh... no, no, it's really exciting. <laughs> <laughs> and I was, yeah, it was wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. Yeah, I was very lucky to have that. You know, I spent the whole morning there. Oh wow! So I was very lucky to have that opportunity to actually. But Diana was an interesting person because. She talked to me like she'd known me all my life. Mm. She's quite intimate with people. And that was another one of her character traits, mm. which I suppose Fergie has too. Yeah. She, yeah. She, you know, she, quite she, an open book. Quite yeah. an open book, yeah. But that fear of people reading about you and then you have to go out and meet them, she said never left her. How sad. But do you think that they're in the solution, just don't read it? I think that's my understanding is that Kate doesn't read anything about herself. Other members of the royal family do. Maybe that's the only way you cope by just she probably pretending used to it's read not and happening. then decided to stop reading. She, you know, also in fairness to all the others, has never been criticised particularly in the media. I don't remember. Waity Katie. Well, there was, there say, was that right yeah, at the start, but I think since her marriage, you yeah, know, it's I been don't plain sailing. I think one thing that leaps out from this conversation is the fact that. We're talking about women, but men have married into the royal family. There's no scrutiny or very little scrutiny on them. Did Captain Mark Phillips suddenly dominate headlines when he married Princess Anne? Does Tim Lawrence today know? (laughs) I think Mark Phillips has had quite a lot of publicity. Certainly when he married Princess Anne, he was very good looking. Mm. And then there's all his stories about him being called Fog because he was thick. (laughs) <laughs> Foggy, he was known as Foggy Phillips. Oh dear. I don't, I, I don't think he really minded. Okay. <laughs> Princess Anne might have minded. Yeah, but, it's not um, what you want to hear about your husband. But he was very handsome, really. Mm. And of course, he was the most superb rider, and that's why she fell in love with him. Yes, he did get some bad publicity. Okay, that's interesting. He so did. But I mean, Tim Lawrence didn't. No, he seems to sort of just diligently 
be there at her side and we love them but more recently you know like Mike Tyndall Jack Bronxbank Eduardo. Um, Eduardo like I mean maybe it's because of their line of succession that they're less prominent but also it seems to me like it, a much easier incredible, ride yeah. Yeah, yeah incredible divide and is that that's just a bit of a sad indictment of society I guess and the way that we we tear down women well I think mm. Mike Tyndall was a you know, a fantastic sportsman, top of his trade, yes. and very respected mm. in the rugby world. So I think people wouldn't, wouldn't didn't want to. I don't remember having much criticism about him. Well, at he all. recently confessed about you know having to really think what he wanted to do with his future for yeah. the first year and a half because yeah. you know he was marrying Zara. Well, he used I to get up to confessed. some, shall we say, high jinks. Oh yes, he did back in he? the day. Yeah. I'd forgotten. <laughs> but that. again, I think that perhaps. Society's more forgiving of that in a man? I don't know. Yeah. Um, going back to Fergie and, uh, no, in fact, Camilla here, how important is it, do you think, for them to have shared interest in sort of country pursuits, in the horse riding, in things like that, to enable them to fit in? Because we know Kate doesn't ride, for example. She's allergic to horses, apparently. She is, by all accounts. So does that she help you? Kate doesn't ride, but she's nothing else she can't do. It's the only thing she can't <laughs> do. She can play rugby. She can abseil. Yeah, she can hockey. play cricket. Yeah. She can play hockey. She's unbelievable. Yeah. So the fact that she can't ride, she's kind of rather escaped that one, hasn't yeah. she? <laughs> she has. But I, I'm just imagining, you know, turning up at Sandringham and having to go out on a shoot or at Balmoral to go fishing or whatnot. And if that's just not your bag, which it wasn't for Diana, was it? No, I mean, Diana used to put on a very good show mm. of thinking how wonderful it was. But Diana had been brought up in that world. And her sister was married to Robert Fellows, Sir Robert Fellows, who was eventually the Queen's private secretary. So they actually had a house on the Balmoral estate. And that's where Diana first went to stay. So she kind of used to walk around and say how beautiful it was. And mm-hmm. It wasn't too alien to her. It then. wasn't totally alien to her. It's just that when she got stuck up there after her honeymoon and it rained every day, I think that's when she was desperate yeah. to get away. It's also it's weird to think you go on a honeymoon with your in-laws. Yes. <laughs> that is somewhat creepy. We're, we're yeah. talking about taking things on, obviously, but also you have to give up a lot because Camilla just spent her first Christmas with her family for the first time in 15 years this past... Christmas Day. Yeah, Christmas yeah. Day. And for 15 years, she had to be with her husband and the late Queen. So you have to think about all the things that you... Uh, yeah, but Camilla only went for that day. She used to escape... Mm. and go back to her family. So she always did Christmas Day at Sandringham, but then she used to escape. Mm -hmm. Back to Ray Mill. Back to Ray Mill and be with her family. So that's not too onerous, really, is it? No, it's just one day, isn't it? Well, she has had... Quite a relief that you have to do any (laughs) cooking. Exactly. (laughs) She has had one of the most remarkable transformations in terms of public opinion over the last couple of decades, really. Again, going back to this horrible woman bashing... She was painted to be the the Scarlet Lady and that must have been incredibly hard to deal with. How do you think she has overcome that? I think she's overcome it by having really good girlfriends. Mm. And she's kept them from her youth and they're still around her now and she's got a huge sense of humour. And I think that's really what's kept her going. The girlfriends and the sense of people, if you think about it, probably what keeps us all going. Mm, it's very true. You've got to, you know, you know, life is so difficult that you've got to be able to laugh. And the, who can you laugh with? Your girlfriends. 
she is sort of remarkably resilient, Camilla, isn't she? When you think about the sort of vitriol that was against her in the press for a very long time, it's amazing that she's kept her head up high throughout the whole thing. But, Leo, as you said, Ingrid, maybe it's the support basis that you have that's, yeah. That, well, that's that what through. she says. She says yeah. she, she had this amazing support basis and she used to just shut herself away and she'd go into, she had a studio. I don't know what house she was living in. She had a studio and she'd go and paint and smoke and paint and smoke. And, and I mean, remember that in the day, Prince Charles, as he was, and he was very attentive to her mm. and his chef would send food round oh. and... And he made sure that she had someone to drive her if she needed to go somewhere. I mean, not in the very beginning, mm -hmm. but, you know, it takes a while for these pennies to drop with the royal family because they're not used to not having it. So they don't understand what it's like when someone doesn't have it. Talking about outsiders being welcomed into the family, what we've seen since William and Kate's marriage is the Middletons being welcomed to Balmoral and Sandringham. I mean, how important do you think it is for the royal family to have these outside influences? I feel like Kate's family background has really stood her in good stead for the role she's in now. She's incredibly secure. She's got a lot of love and affection there. And William has really been taken under their wing as much as she has become part of the royal family. I think absolutely. So we're back to the Middletons again. They provided the stability and the upbringing and the confidence. And I think that, you know, we remember when William first started going out with Kate, he was practically adopted by the Middletons. Mm -hmm. But then his own family situation was difficult at the time. I think that the strength of that family tie, and the Queen used to think it was important that children that married into the royal family didn't come from broken homes because she just looked at Diana and Fergie and thought it's the broken homes. But then you look at Sophie Rees-Jones, she came from a very stable family background. Then you've got, as we said, Kate from an immensely stable family background. Was Sophie a favourite of the late Queen? Because I've always felt that. She was, she was. And I think it probably really gelled when she had such a problem with her daughter. Yeah, the birth. I think, and the Queen went to see her in hospital. It's very rare. Very, very rare. And I think the Queen just sort of looked after her. Oh. You know, I think she just took her under her wing and then they discovered that they had quite a lot of things in common. And they talked about military history. They both were really interested. Obviously, the Queen was, but Sophie became really interested. And Sophie used to go off to see sort of like the battlegrounds of the Somme and things and then tell the Queen all about it. Amazing. I quite, love quite that. niche, isn't it? For, um, <laughs> yeah, that's quite niche. For a girly conversation. <laughs> but, um, no, I think... She knew the way, though, to her mother-in-law's heart. Yeah, well, I think Sophie's a really interesting case in point. We touched on this in our introduction, that she also had a very hard time in the media. Things didn't quite go according to plan when her and Edward tried to combine their careers with royal life. And obviously, I think everyone learned from that. But she seems to have just been able to get on quietly with the job. Do you think that also comes down to the line of succession again? There's less scrutiny, I think, less pressure. I, I, I remember now that when Sophie first started going out with Edward... She had the usual problems with paparazzi and all that sort of thing. But the Queen then gave her some rooms in Buckingham Palace. And she had the key of the door, if you like. And she stayed there. And I remember there was quite an uproar within the churchgoers in those days because they said, you know, she's living with Edward and they're not married. Mm. And this is the royal family you're talking about. And then Fergie and Diana complained. They said, well, look, Sophie's been given this privilege. We weren't. And if it had happened to us... 
it might, might have been easier. Mm. If it actually did happen to Diana, she seemed to have forgotten that. She was living <laughs> there too. But I think the Queen was just so anxious to do within her limits to do something to try and help Sophie and Edward. Mm. And it did. Because she also, she had a PR background, didn't she? So she understood the media to an extent. I suppose none of us can imagine what it's actually like to be in the eye of the storm, so to speak, when it comes to signing up for this. Now, not in a far future, talking about Sophie, her daughter will have to introduce, you know, a partner possibly into the royal family. Will we see the same thing that we've seen in the past or will she just be lucky because there'll be a male coming in? That's a good question. Very good question. So this is Lady Louise. Yes. I think there'll be a lot of interest in Lady Louise. There'll be a huge amount of interest in her yeah. and her romance because she's young, she's gorgeous. And yeah. The current royal family, they're all ageing very yeah, fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Apart from William and Kate. But I mean, so to have somebody young on the scene is... It's going to be it, big. It's going to be big, isn't it? And the same, I suppose, for George, Charlotte and Louis. They're a little way off at the moment. Yeah. But you'd like to think that probably thanks to their parents, the way that their parents are modernising things, that it will be a much smoother journey for their future partners coming in. Or will history repeat itself? No, I really don't think so. Well, one thing that's interesting is that Kate is really interested in generational trauma as part of her early years development thing. And I've always wondered if that's partly because of the way things have not worked out within the institution in the past and... Maybe that's something that they're looking to change. Right. I'm sure they're trying to change it all the time. Mm. And I think that her expertise with young children will really pave the way for some changes. But the world might have changed a lot by then, too. It is quite a long way in the future. But, you know, things happen very quickly, don't they? Of course. I mean, if I was them, I'd watch The Crown all seasons and just get a feel for entering <laughs> the royal family and who to curtsy to and, and whatnot. I think that should be on their homework list. That's a very good point. I'd like to think that society's moved on sufficiently for it not to be quite so... I think the deference that was probably there in the 80s and 90s is shifted slightly oh yes very much so very much so now as a last question this is a tricky one if you were to turn any of the lives that we've spoken about into a film you know becoming part of the royal family which one would have the best story to tell in a film Fergie definitely (laughs) I would watch it, 100%. She'll want to play herself, you know that. I was going to say, who's playing Fergie in this scenario? Oh, that's a good question. I'm available. (laughs) Sign you up. Ingrid, thank you so much for joining us. It's really fascinating to hear your thoughts on this. And we'd love to have you back sometime. Thank you very much. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. It's gone very, very quickly. (laughs) Thanks for coming, Ingrid. I loved our chat with Ingrid so much. That was really fascinating. It's great to hear again some of these stories that I vaguely remember, but Emmy, some of them were completely new to you. (laughs) Um, Because we do look at recent royal history and think about the challenges of joining, but actually, unfortunately, they've been there for a long time. Society's changed a little bit, but one thing that really shocks me is how much the focus is on the women and how unfair that seems. It's so true. And it really is that history has repeated itself, hasn't it? But obviously with social media making things that much worse now. So if anything, even though we're more in modern times and you think it would make things easier to enter the royal family, if anything, it's actually 
Sounds more of a challenge. Are you not tempted? Um, Well, you know, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Who comes my way? (laughs) Right, guys, on to our next guest, Victoria Murphy. Yep, this is uh, my lovely friend and the fantastic royal journalist and author, Victoria. We are so happy that you're here with us on a Right Roll podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Excellent. We are talking about what it takes to become a member of the royal family, beyond the fairy tale wedding, beyond the romance. How do you even begin to adapt? Well, I know. And I think what what is so unique about this situation is, of course, you get the job by falling in love, which is how it happens now. Obviously, historically, maybe not so much. But the actual requirements of the job are very specific and very challenging. And I think really you do have to be very much prepared to live your lives within the confines of a very well-defined structure. And it can be tweaked, as we've seen over the years, but it can't be completely overhauled. And I think fundamentally that is what you are signing up to. But it is interesting because the narrative around people joining the royal family, and particularly women joining, I think has kind of erases the acknowledgement that actually it is a huge sacrifice and it is very difficult because we think of it as this fairy tale. You know, it's a tale as old as time. It's marrying a prince, a handsome prince. Um, but, you know, all princes are handsome, are they not? So um, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's a whole other episode. <laughs> so we have this idea that the people marrying in, particularly, as I say, when it comes to women, they're kind of getting this prize. They're getting this huge prize and they should be so grateful for that. And Therefore, why wouldn't you be prepared to do anything it takes? Why wouldn't you put up with whatever it takes? Because you're getting this fantastic thing that is the stuff of fairy tales that so many people want. And actually, the reality, I think it is, as we've seen over the years, you know, it can be incredibly challenging. That is something we've talked about already a little bit, but it's all a bit sexist, isn't it, Victoria? (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) like Like, everything, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's definitely a society-wide issue, not just to do with the royal family, but how we talk about women, how we look at women, how we encourage people to scrutinise women in areas and in ways that we don't encourage people to scrutinise men. And we've definitely seen that played out when people have joined the royal family, you know, comparing the way that Princess Anne's husbands were talked about, the interest levels in them in comparison to the peers, you know, so the women who married into the royal family for that generation and the way that they were talked about and the interest levels in them. And yes, I mean, in the internet age as well, because we have a situation where everyone can join the conversation, everyone can voice their opinions, everyone can can talk about these women, it's sort of amplified even more. We were thinking about this earlier, weren't we? Because in a way, it's like you'd think, hopefully, that in modern times, we've moved on enough that entering the royal family would be easier. But actually, would you say it's worse now than when the likes of Diana or Fergie joined the royal family because of social media? I definitely think any public figure has huge additional challenges because of social media. Mm. And I think that's really something that is going to come up for the next generation of royals because William and Kate, when they had their courtship, it actually 
it's almost crazy to think of it, but it really wasn't in the internet age because that was 20 years ago. I was saying I was at university around that time as well and didn't have smartphones and you sort of had a phone, but nobody was really using it in any meaningful way. For the anything. cameras were rubbish. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but you always carried one anyway. <laughs> right? We actually talked to each other and we yeah. actually sat in the room and there's no pictorial records of it all over Thank the internet. God. And so any person now who's joining the royal family, any young person who meets a member of the royal family, well, they're going to have to think about their whole internet history. So what's already online, you know, all of the pictures that might have been taken and moving forward, how are they going to manage this for future generations? Because when William went to university, the media was off limits. And in making the media coverage off limits, it meant that very little came out about his time at university. Whereas that wouldn't necessarily translate now. So if George, Charlotte, Louis go to university and the media is off limits, how do you police hundreds of university students with phones? How does that work? What does that mean for how their lives will have to play out or the people around them? So I think this is something that's going to be really quite fascinating to see how they manage this. You say that, but Lady Louise is at university and we haven't seen one single photo. We haven't heard anything. And I think you were talking about social media, but actually the press was very, very different back then to now. I think there's a lot more respect for their private life, what can be printed, what can't be. I know obviously people can upload a photo onto Twitter, but really the media can't touch that. So I think Mm. even though we have social media now, it probably was worse before, though, with all the newspapers. I think, that you're, I think, I think you're just comparing slightly different things, yeah. though, because I think on the one hand, yes, the newspapers are much more kept in check than, yeah. than they were. But as Vic says, absolutely anyone. And you yeah. know, it could be, well, I was going to say your bus driver, but the walls don't get on the bus today. <laughs> <laughs> it, it could be your footman. It can, no, I'm joking. <laughs> but, you know, it's anyone potentially could catch you off guard doing something that you just might not want publicised. Uh, well, there's one thing springing to mind. Harry's Vegas trip. Yes. That was taken on a phone. Yes. And that was probably during the beginning of social media or not even? There were lots of pictures of him when he was in public places yeah. in yeah. Vegas that, of course, in previous eras, those pictures would only have been available if they'd been taken by the media, whereas yeah, now yeah, the public yeah. can take them. Uh, yeah, with Le- that's an interesting point about Lady Louise. And perhaps there is a point to be made that there will be a certain amount of, as we are all kind of learning to better navigate and better manage social media, you know, it's something I'm thinking about a lot with a child who's going to go to secondary school in a year or so, really sort of hoping that society kind of gets a handle on this yeah. and on the fact that we don't always need to be on our phones, we don't always need to broadcast everything and how do you balance just because you can do it and the technology is available now how do you balance that with managing what's right for people's lives and perhaps there will be some kind of almost self-regulation that happens with the people around the royals when they're at university and when they're in those spaces but it's challenging to think how you can police that to every detail, like Emily said, if they're going out in the street and if they're going into shops and if they're having multiple interactions with lots of unknown members of the public is much more difficult thing to control. We talked about whether people have the experience of being in the media or not, but the arrival of commoners, in inverted commas, into the royal family has been a beneficial thing, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, when we talk about this, if we look at the generation with Charles and Diana, I mean, 
Diana was as aristocratic as they come, wasn't she really? Yet she had this incredible ability to connect with the general public and with ordinary people. So it doesn't necessarily always translate that just it's just your background that influences who you can connect with. But when we look at certainly William and Kate and his decision as heir to choose to marry somebody who wasn't from an aristocratic background and you don't have to go back far in her family to see a connection with ordinary people. Both her parents had very regular jobs. They built their wealth through business, but they weren't privileged in their own lifestyle and upbringings at all. That definitely feels like a very kind of positive step Mm. for the royal family and the direction that the royal family is taking to have those influences. But I don't think there's any getting away, really, from the fact that the one person who joined the royal family who genuinely was from a very different background, Meghan, American, the first non-white person to marry in the family, she chose to leave. And I do think the optics of that have been and continue to be very challenging for the royal family because... Even though we know the polling shows that it's Harry and Meghan's popularity that's taken the hit and the other members of the royal family are still polling quite well with the British public, I still think when you look at that scenario, it really feels like the monarchy has lost there. You know, I mean, you and I, Emily, we were in Cape Town when Meghan made a speech and she described herself as a woman of colour. And it really felt like a moment. It really you know? connected with people, yeah. didn't it? Yeah. It really felt like she was representing the institution of the monarchy at the time. And this was a time when the monarchy could speak to people around the world in a totally different way. And so I do think that there was many, many factors in them leaving. And I'm not sure it's that beneficial to dissect all of the factors. And a lot of it, as we see now, I think had to do with where Harry was at and his feelings about Mm -hmm. everything. But still, just the fact that she didn't stay and the fact that the monarchy is now at odds with Harry and Meghan. I think that that's definitely fundamentally been a very negative thing for them. Yeah, I think it does go both ways, doesn't it? Because you have these people marrying into this institution, but it's also what they bring with them, which is of great value to the royal family. And and she had that in spades. And, And as you say, was bringing a whole new demographic, really, into the fold and making people feel represented, making people feel seen. That's a big challenge, maybe one that won't be resolved anytime soon. I did want to ask, do you think the next generation of royals, when they start bringing their partners home, the senior royal family, so William, Harry and so on, will deal with it very differently than how their parents dealt with it and maybe put in small safeguards to make newcomers to the royal family feel more welcome? Yeah, I mean, we're looking really just at William and Kate and their three children, because that is the future of the working royal family. And I think we've already seen William show a very significant determination to changing the trajectory. And he sort of did that himself for him and Kate, really. He saw what happened with his mother. He saw that his parents got married very quickly. They clearly actually weren't very happy. And his mother found it incredibly difficult. And he wanted something very different to that and he made a deliberate attempt to do that and that worked. It was very important to him that the Middleton family felt included, that they felt welcomed, that they were part of the conversation. It was very important to him, perhaps some people would say to quite an extreme length, that he waited a very long time before <laughs> he got engaged. You don't want to rush into this. <laughs> and he, they met and, you know, Kate 
she grew up outside of the royal family. And she brings those influences that I think can be very positive from having done mm. that. But she also kind of grew up within it as well because she met William when she was 19. She was at university. And when I think about myself from 19 to 29... I changed a lot. You know, they mm. were very formative years. And so she was adapting and changing as an individual within the understanding of this situation that she was in. It was quite gradual. And as a couple, I think that they're very intent on doing what's right for their family. We've seen that manifest yeah. itself, even if it sometimes means making decisions that might be a little bit unpopular with the public. So yeah. when they said, we're going to go move to Windsor, but we're not giving up any of our other properties, oh, yeah. you know, a little bit raised eyebrows there, especially if you're championing homelessness as one of your main charitable causes. But fundamentally, that was the right thing for their family and for their children and for the next phase of their children's life. And that's where they prioritise that. I feel like they really are putting that emphasis on protecting their kids and making things as easy for them in a time where things are changing beyond all recognition as a parent yourself. Like you can only imagine it's hard enough dealing with our own kids, but knowing that they have that trajectory in front of them, I can't even begin to get my head around it. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's a lot and they're very keen to protect them. I can't help but think if Diana were here today that, and, you know, if William still went on to meet Kay and Harry went on to meet Meghan, that it would have been so different them coming into the royal family. Because, you know, Diana would know what worked and what didn't for her. And it just would have been completely different. I mean, we wouldn't have been having the same conversation right now. Well, we would have been talking probably of a big change that happened thanks to that. But actually what we've seen so far in this episode is that it has kind of been the same for everyone. Yeah, I don't think there's anyone who's come in and not had some challenge. No one's immediately taken to it like a, a duck to water. Some... Jack Brooksbanks had a nice time. (laughs) (laughs) Jack's done done a great job. I think that's an interesting point because obviously marrying a minor royal and not being a working royal yourself is a very different situation. And it's worth sort of mentioning that the position in which you join the royal family has a huge impact perhaps on everything and maybe a little bit on what you're prepared to accept in the sense that if you're coming in and you're getting the top job and you're getting a constitutional position, is your attitude to what you're prepared to accept and sacrifice different perhaps I don't know this is the thing about the royal family that's tricky isn't it because they champion all these causes and they encourage the idea of a meritocracy within our society but yet they themselves are completely representative of this very fixed entrenched hierarchical structure where you either walk in front or you walk behind depending on where your birth position and it's slightly at odds with what we describe as positive in our society today. And it is so fixed and the hierarchy is very much there. And I think that even though there is this suggestion that it doesn't exist behind closed doors in every aspect of society, I think it's a bit naive to think that it suddenly disappears. And I think Harry's book actually was a very interesting insight into that, the psychology of growing up as the second 
and The Spare, the title of the book, and how that permeated into all of his experiences. I think Megan said about that as well, didn't she? When she went to meet the Queen for the first time, she really didn't expect to be curtsying and using all the protocol. Because you think behind closed doors that it'd just be normality, but it's not. It's And Mm. I think it shows how surprised she was by it. I blame for that one because, you know, he needs to have told her. Oh, and there's no blame. Well, no blame, fine. (laughs) But he could have prepared her better. Maybe so, Victoria. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. And it's something as well that would we say we know for sure exactly what they do behind closed doors. But I would probably say, yeah, I would have expected them to curtsy to the Queen behind closed doors because of the generation that she is and the position that she has. But that has definitely been weeded out from the general family relationships as time has gone on. Things have changed. Things have become much less formal. The deference is what it was. Yeah. Yeah. But with Queen Elizabeth, it was obviously very much still there, that reverence from another era. But, you know, a lot has changed. And we talk about people coming into the royal family, but the royal family integrates so much more than they used to historically. So Queen Elizabeth was educated at home. And now you have members of the royal family going to schools. I mean, yes, they go to elite private schools. But if you look at George's nursery, actually, in Norfolk, Mm. when he went to nursery, he went to a very regular nursery school. So there's that movement towards becoming so much more integrated in their everyday lives. I think they've understood that, haven't they? And we've seen, you know, the way that they've had jobs, like William doing the air ambulance and things like that, that it's as important for them to adapt to life outside as it is to those coming into the family to sort of adapt to this archaic institution. What I wanted to ask you, Vic, is about Queen Camilla. Now, she joined in her 50s and hadn't particularly had a career before that. It's quite a time, isn't it, to become a senior (laughs) working member of the royal family and and a future queen consort. How do you think she has managed to sort of smooth that transition? It's a kind of fascinating situation because it's very different to the sort of expected trajectory for marrying into the royal family and marrying at a younger age and you start your life and that's it. But yeah, Camilla coming in when she did and also with all of the narrative and the backstory behind her that she had and all of the baggage that her and Charles had, but also not just an age that she was, but also the generation that she was and the class that she was she perhaps wouldn't have expected to be a woman who had a career. I think her son has actually said this, you know, in an interview. She was expecting to be a, a mother and whatever uh, women of that. Maker, I yeah, guess. I, yeah, I mean, and then to suddenly have this huge responsibility. I think she's definitely an example of somebody who has accepted, initially accepted, rather than embraced the public side of the role. I think it was very much, I love my husband and I want to support him and therefore I accept this rather than coming in and saying wow this exciting opportunity to do all this work but she's not really sought out the role I don't think not at all no. no but then I think as time has gone on she has become quite attached to some of the charities and causes that she's worked with and developed a very genuine desire to work hard for those causes, which I think she definitely has now. I think she's a very loyal person. Mm. And if you're her friend and you're in her team, she will work very, very hard to help you and to support you. I think that's the kind of person that she is. One to have on your corner. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. There's also no getting away from the fact that 
she's in her 70s. Charles is also in his 70s, but I think he has a different approach. I think he's much more zealous about his workload and wants to do, he's always talked about how he always working and that's the way he wants to live his life I don't think that's how she feels I think she does it out of a sense of responsibility well, she's talked about being frustrated by the fact that he he's just being in the office yeah. all yeah. evening yeah. yeah and it is quite a lot to be taking on the top job as queen and second top job as queen <laughs> at this time in her life and suddenly be much more in the spotlight than she was and at the forefront of things like state visits and she was always back slightly when it was Queen Elizabeth's era. So I think she's working hard and her timetable is being managed in a way that makes it possible for her to also have the time that she needs as a woman of her age and some time to spend with her children and grandchildren as well. Fascinating to me, a continual source of fascination at how successful the narrative around her has been turned around. Yeah. Right. yeah. Is that the secret to becoming a successful new member of the royal family? Just time and resilience and waiting for the... I think just getting on with the job yeah. is a big, big part of it, isn't it? It's like waiting for the press tide to turn kind of thing. Well, I guess these things come in waves. And, you know, someone was saying to me the other day, you have to remember that even the late Queen, beloved as she was had a period of difficult media yeah. in the 80s and 90s, popularity waned, and that's the nature of something that is so constant in society, isn't it? Yeah, I think having the capacity to play the long game and to not jump into things and to take a step back, and I think that's actually one of the things that Kate has in spades. I think the ability to create distance from things that happen and to take that long-term view and if you look at the royal family and the approach that they've taken in recent years to a lot of the upheaval that's happened with the royal family and a lot of the criticism that's been leveled at them they have taken the approach to say as little as possible mm. and keep their heads down and carry on with the job and it seems to have served them pretty well. I think there were problems for them at the moment. I think there was cracks in the polling where you can see that they're not really appealing to young people. As I mentioned before, I think the reputational damage done to them by Harry and Meghan leaving, also reputational damage by everything with Andrew, has definitely not gone away. I think it's still impacting. But by and large, I think they're in a fairly even place as a result of just keeping on with their duties and their responsibilities. Yeah, I mean, the Queen said to tell people least said soonest mended which is perhaps the mantra isn't it just ride out the storm I guess when these things happen. I do wonder whether in hindsight they wish they'd done more with Meghan to help ease her transition into the royal family because like you said this is a very very different you know someone not from the aristocracy someone from the US and so on surely their usual rules of just let yeah, them get on with did. it don't apply maybe they did help but well, maybe there are some things that couldn't be changed and possibly because you know the late queen was still alive and maybe had it happened you know, following the death of the Queen, maybe could have been different. I don't know. It's very difficult when you have someone, and it happens to all families, changing things when there's like a matriarch or a patriarch and they've set things in stone. I mean, in all families, you have to go and celebrate Christmas and you have to have the annual gathering yeah. and you can't I change those things so easily. It, I think but... there's definitely a question around whether or not earlier on when there were challenges and, you know, Meghan was the first member of the royal family to be on the receiving end of racism. Yeah. And mm. could they have handled that differently? There's definitely a question about things along the way that happened 
after she joined. But once it got to the stage where Harry and Meghan were saying that they wanted half in, half out model, I'm not sure that the royal family could have adapted that much to give them that because it's, like I said, the institution can be tweaked, but it can't be fundamentally overhauled. And if you have a publicly funded institution and individuals are half of the time part of that and half of the time not, I think that would have been fraught with problems. And I'm not sure they could ever have allowed that to have been the case. And it's easy for us to think, oh, that would have been perfect. But actually, there's so much more behind that. You know, we yeah. don't know. They know, and they know it won't work. And we're like, oh, come on, let's do I it. I think and it would have just opened them up to yeah. so much criticism and accusations that if you're a working member of the royal family and you're going around doing royal duties, meeting diplomats on behalf of a country, and then the next minute you're making private money doing other things, yeah. that's yeah, right for yeah, criticism. Gonna... And they would have been so vulnerable to that. I'm not sure how they could have adapted that much to let that be possible. We talked about this earlier, experienced something similar with Edward and Sophie back in the day. And as a result, they gave up their careers to become full-time working royals because it just wasn't workable. Mm. So perhaps they're all things that the royal family have learned. Yeah. Yeah. And Edward and Sophie, I mean, arguably further down the pecking order, if Harry and Meghan had stayed in the royal family, they would have been an incredibly prominent Mm. part of the institution. They were always part of any kind of slimmed down plan. You know, it was always going to be the two couples, the younger couples and the king and queen. That was the idea. And so they would have been much more front and centre yeah. than, and it, yes, and it wasn't workable for someone who was... Further down yeah. the, the pecking order. I wonder kind of what guidance they're giving at the beginning. And we spoke earlier in the episode about Lady Susan Hussey and being asked to kind of like chaperone Megan in the early days and teach her some things. But obviously it's very tricky to get someone that has been with the royal family for decades she'll just be like do this do that and obviously you'll ask questions but could I nope and you'll be shut down immediately like it is difficult even with help I would assume to kind of learn the ropes I I think the thing is that once you are married in and once you have a title you have a private secretary or you have staff around you who are there to advise and help you but really no one can take the position for you and know and I guess a lot of these decisions You just have to make yourselves. I mean, Megan actually did give us some insight into that because she said there wasn't any help Mm. and there wasn't any coaching. And I don't think there is. I think if you look at Kate as an example, her and William, the relationship started very much outside of any kind of royal life. And that was what was cultivated first. And when it became clear that she was going to marry in and that she was definitely going to make this her life and be a working royal... My understanding is that she did have conversations with other working royals at the time. So Sophie was someone that she spoke to and Camilla, I think, Mm -hmm. as well, that they had conversations about what the role involved. But of course, it's very specific to each individual. And their position. Yeah, their position. The level of interest in Kate far exceeded the level of interest in Sophie. I think the intensity of the interest in that relationship and that marriage and also what their personal strengths and weaknesses are as a character. So Kate, for example, she was instantly very good at talking to people one-on-one, connecting with people. She seemed really natural and relaxed in that role straight away, almost as if she had been coached, but I don't think she had been given any specific coaching. 
But then when it came to public speaking, oh, yeah. I remember she, those speeches she wasn't comfortable with it. And she was given some coaching for that first speech. But I think... If you compare them now. <laughs> yeah, but it's still a difficult thing to do yeah. if it doesn't come naturally to you. So, And a lot of it, I think, is just learning on the job and watching and observing. Yeah. And I think, actually, it was William who yeah. helped her, who told her what to do. And he was the person that she really looked to. Because mm-hmm. he'd been doing it all his life. Yeah. If you could interview a candidate to become a working royal next week, what sort of skill set would you be looking for in 2023? To be a very senior working royal. I mean, I think you definitely have to have an ability to connect with people. That's the most important thing. People need to feel that when they meet you, they're connecting with you. Somehow you need to be able to make the public who's watching on social media or on screens feel a connection with you as well. I think probably what I said at the beginning, which is fundamentally just a willingness to accept that your life will be lived out within a system. And I think that's, you have to completely accept that. You fundamentally have to accept that. Thick skin. And that's, yeah, (laughs) yeah. I think the ability actually to compartmentalise, to be able to be present in the moment for when you're doing royal work, but also to have the ability to preserve yourself yeah, and to go be to, switch off. to be able to switch off. And I think that's one character trait that I've always said that Queen Elizabeth had. Also, Kate has it as well. Yeah. I think she goes outside, she likes the outdoors, she exercises, she can genuinely shut down the conversation and the chatter from the world outside and from the public role that she has. And I think it's actually a really difficult thing to do. I don't know if I'd be able to do oh, it, but I, I think... She's <laughs> the, the queen of self-care, I yeah. think. Yeah, yeah. Young people would say these days. And loyal friends. I think you need loyal yeah. friends. I think it's the people who surround you as well who really help you. Because I think William this. and Kate have really good loyal friends that practically don't see them they just have normal lives and i think that keeps them also grounded mm. and the family as well i think yeah, her family yeah, has played sure. a huge role in in helping her to keep that balance i guess well there you go if you have those traits then please head over to directly on linkedin yeah i mean it's going to be fascinating to kind of see what happens with this next generation and how they make it work when do they start gradually introducing George and Charlotte and Louis to duties? Will it be a similar age to the age that we've seen previous generations or will they try and change things and kind of push it back a little bit and say, do you know what, we're going to stay completely private for even longer because that's what's important. Yeah, it's interesting. We've seen a lot more of the Wales children actually over the last Mm. year than than we have done in previous years. And that's partly also because we've had these major events, you know, the Platinum Jubilee, the Queen's death and the coronation. It'll be interesting to see whether we continue to see them sporadically or whether they sort of go quiet again until until there's another big event. Yeah, the fact that they were so public around the time of the Platinum Jubilee was because it was such an extraordinary event and the same with the funeral and the coronation. But it's also a reflection of the fact that I think William and Kate are very happy with the life that they have and the relationship that they have as a family with the media. They're not being broadcast when they don't want to be therefore they're quite happy to bring the children out yeah exactly and release images and that's always been their thing that they're happy to share but as long as it's on their terms while the children are young time goes so fast because I can't believe that George is 10 now and that actually we're talking about something that will happen not 
in the too distant future. Well, we, we both have children near the same age, think, don't wow, we? Wow, like how are we here already? We'll have Lady, Lady Louise first and her brother, but I feel like they'll mm. have a more private life. Victoria, thank you so much for coming in to join us. That was really, really insightful. And we'd love to have you back one day. Yes, thank you. I would love to come back. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) That was a great chat. I loved meeting her. I've been following her on Twitter for so long. I did feel like I was meeting a bit of a celeb (laughs) because I've also followed her on Twitter for a really long time. Yeah, Victoria is fantastic. She's a great journalist and she does have a lot of insight. I find her analysis really, really good and really interesting. She definitely knows her Kate stuff, that's for sure. She does. Well, she's kind of been there from the start. You know, that's why we call her Queen Vic. Ah, (laughs) Makes sense. What are our conclusions about becoming a member of the royal family? Uh, It's not for me. (laughs) Not for me. I mean, no offence, girls, but I'm not sure uh, anyone's knocking on our doors anytime soon. Excuse me, Emily, that's very (laughs) Yeah, that's true. No, I I do think, yeah, we'll we'll never know, but I think my overall takeaway is that it's much, much harder than perhaps we could imagine. And it's because of media scrutiny, I think, is the main issue with it and social media and, yeah. No, just life in general, I think. and, And also, the public because the public are consuming it right and if that's what people want then that's kind of what gets served up to them but um, maybe we should all have a long hard look at ourselves So that's everything from us today. Thank you so much to all of our guests and to you two for joining us We'll be back to talk about Christmas! Yay! (laughs) In the meantime, catch more from Hello with our news and entertainment show The Daily Lowdown, available on Spotify, Apple and wherever you get your podcasts Bye. Bye.